go ahead and turn to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. This morning uh, I was trying to cover a great deal of content and a little bit of time and uh, looking back uh, I realized we were not as tied to a text as I like us to be uh, in preaching. I like us to be tied to a text. Well, tonight we are definitely going to be tied to the text. You need to have uh, your Bibles open. You need to be able to see these verses because uh, these things can be difficult. And I want to make sure that you're looking and reading and trying to understand uh, Paul's flow of thought uh, in this passage. So we're going to be looking together at uh, Romans chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, Romans 7 and verse 13. Here's what we read. This is the word of God. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Everything Paul is saying in these verses is meant to support that point that he made in verse 12, the point we've seen over and again. The law of God is holy. Each and every commandment that God gives to us is holy, righteous, and good. The law of God is to be loved. The law of God is to be cherished and honored. Yes, Jesus came to save us from the law's condemnation. But the law is not our enemy. The law is our friend. It has been made our friend by the gospel. And the law is a precious gift to us from God. Now last time we were together in Romans 7, last Sunday night, we saw the first four of six truths from verses 13 and 14. We were looking at verses 13 and 14. There were six truths that we were 
looking at there. They're all right there on the very face of the verses. And we saw the first four of them. Uh, number one was, it is, the, it is not the law that kills. It is sin that kills. Right? Number two was, God gave the law that our sin might be seen as sin. The law was given that we might know sin and see it for what it is. The third truth that we've seen here is that God gave the law that our sin would become sinful beyond measure. And we talked last week about a couple of different ways we can understand that, that ultimately, in, in my view, we're more culpable before God because we have the law. And then finally, we saw last week that the law is spiritual. It's not just some list of rules on a sheet of paper or on tablets of stone, but there's something to the Spirit of God attached to the law of God, and that it deals not only with our outward actions, but with who we are through and through, right down to the very depths of our, our hearts. Each and every one of these points is being made by Paul to demonstrate that the law of God is a servant to our souls, a servant that does us good, when God's Spirit adds His blessing. In contrast to the law, which is holy, righteous, and good, are you and I. In our natural self, we are not holy, righteous, and good. And if you'll look at the last part of verse 14, the last part of verse 14, that's where we see those other two points that we're going to look at tonight. Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So point number five, we are of the flesh. Point number six, we are sold under sin. And yet immediately there's this question that jumps out at us as we read these verses. Namely, when Paul says, I am of the flesh, I am sold under sin, is he describing himself as he is, when he writes this, a Christian, is he describing his present Christian condition? Or is he perhaps describing who he was before he was saved? Before he was converted to Christ? In verses 14 all the way through 25, Paul describes himself as a conflicted man. Paul describes himself as a man who wants to do what is right. Genuinely, deep down, he wants to do the right thing, but he keeps finding himself doing the opposite. In these verses, we find a man who loves the law of God, and yet he keeps finding again and again that he doesn't have the ability to fulfill it. And he goes so far as to call himself a wretched man. And so the question for us is this, is he describing his experience as a Christian or his experience as a non-Christian? I want to be very clear, very upfront about this. These verses are not easy to interpret. And godly men throughout history have taken very different positions on this. And honestly, the more I've read and the more I've studied the more difficult I found it to be able to say dogmatically, this is the, the right interpretation. Um, the view of the early church, uh, the view of the early church fathers that we have in their writings, was that Paul was describing himself here as an uh, unconverted man. Um, though that view fell out of favor uh, for a while, 
Uh, That view has now become more and more prevalent, uh, particularly in the last hundred years. Uh, I've mentioned before in our study of Romans that many people today consider uh, Douglas Moo's commentary on Romans to be something of the uh, uh, the standard bearer for, for our day as far as studies in the book of Romans. Douglas Moo takes this view that Paul is describing himself here, not as a Christian, but as an unconverted man. And increasingly, that's becoming the view that we see in more modern commentaries. Now, if we view the passage this way, that Paul is describing himself as an unconverted man, as a Christian, here is how we might understand it. Paul was already, in Romans 7, told us something about how God was working in his life even before he encountered the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. There was a time when Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a man of the law, and he kept the law outwardly. And he took great pride in his obedience to the law of God. He believed that his law-keeping earned him God's favor. And he looked down on those who did not keep the law of God as he did. But as we've already seen in previous verses, God used that very same law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, and in particular the commandment, you shall not covet, to bring conviction into Paul's life. Uh, What Paul began to see was that that Tenth Commandment, I don't know why it's doing it. Uh, the tenth commandment, "You shall not covet." It did not deal mainly with. It did not deal mainly with externals, right? Obeying God outwardly, but the commandment, "You shall not covet," is all about the heart. It's all about what's happening inside of you. And so Paul began to realize that the law of God is about more than regulating your outward behavior. The law of God is about who you are to be through and through. And when he realized that, he began to see what a slave to sin he really was. And so when we come to these verses here, many believe that Paul is still on that same track, describing his experience as a man who had come under conviction of the Holy Spirit. That Paul is describing the way he felt in those days when he was beginning to see what a slave to sin he was, and yet he was not yet converted. He was not yet looking to Christ for salvation, but he was just coming to grips with what a wretched man he was. Um, According to this view, the anguish in these verses is the anguish of the unconverted man under the heavy conviction of the Holy Spirit. And many believe that Paul is presenting something of his own testimony, that he's dramatically relating what it was like under conviction, and that the way he dramatically relates this is by speaking in the present tense. So Paul says in verse 14, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And that sounds like a man who's saying, God's law law is is holy and good and righteous, but I'm not. I am a slave to sin. Verse 15, look at verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That sounds like a man saying, I'm trying my best to keep God's law, but I keep sinning. I don't want to sin, but it keeps happening. And perhaps Paul is thinking here about his own fight with covetousness. 
He knew God's law was good. And he knew God's law said, do not covet. And he was resolving in his heart, okay, I'm not going to covet anymore. And then he kept finding himself coveting. Surely he was learning that he was not as right with God as he had at one time previously thought. Paul was beginning to see the reality of Christ's words, that the Pharisees were actually whitewashed tombs, all pretty on the outside, but full of death on the inside. Then there's verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Do you hear the language of bondage there? I want to do what is, what is right, but I can't. I don't have the ability. I keep doing evil. We have more of this language in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Or again, verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So according to this view, Paul is brought to the point of utter humility, all his self-righteousness, all his pride being buried in the dust by the power of the law of God with the Spirit's blessing upon it. God's law brings Paul to see his own depravity, his utter desperate need for a Savior. And then in verse 24, he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And most who hold to this view of Romans 7 say then that this part of Romans 7 is really about the unbeliever coming to Jesus and that it is actually, as we move into Romans 8, that Paul begins to describe his experience as a Christian. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so those who hold to this view say that Romans 7, Paul is describing his life as an unconverted man coming to Christ, and then Romans 8 is about the life of one who has been set free. That view has a lot going for it, and I am not at all certain that it's not the correct interpretation. Now, as I said earlier, the view of the early church fathers was that Paul was describing himself, as I just described, as an unconverted man coming to Christ. One exception to that was Augustine. Augustine originally held to that view, like most of the people of his day, But as he got older, he actually changed his mind. And later in life, Augustine held that Paul was describing himself as a Christian, his present experience as a believer. And when we come to the Reformation, we find men like Luther and Calvin and others, they followed Augustine in that view, as did the Puritans. And uh, that was what was handed down to us up until uh, about 100 years ago when more and more of the technical commentaries began taking the other position again. Uh, In this understanding, Paul is referring to himself as a believer, and he's referring to the Christian's active struggle with sin. Those who read it this way would would argue that Paul is describing himself the same way he talks in Galatians 5. Uh, In Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, 
Paul says this. Just, just listen to these verses. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you hear the similarity there? To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Uh, J.C. Ryle once famously said that there are two marks of a true Christian. Inner peace and inner warfare. That true Christians know what it is to have inner peace. A peace that passes understanding as we rest in Christ. But the true Christian will also know what it is to have at the exact same time as that inner peace. They also know that inner warfare, that battle between godly desires and ungodly fleshly desires. Uh, In the Galatians passage, Paul is clearly referring to Christians and to that battle within the soul of a believer. Um, Now, according to this view, when Paul says in verse 14 that he is sold under sin. He's not referring to being a slave to sin the same way he was before he was saved. Rather, he's referring to that part of him, his flesh still being under sin. That when Paul describes doing what he hates and not doing the good he wants to do, he's reflecting the Christian life, that inward battle this side of heaven. That when he says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He isn't describing the anguish of a man under conviction, but the agony of a Christian who longs to be holy, but isn't yet. When he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, what he's referring to is not coming to Jesus in conversion, but the day when Jesus will deliver his soul out of this corrupt body and make him perfectly holy at last. So, which interpretation is right? What is the correct way to read the passage? Right now, I favor the latter view, but I am not at all certain of it. But let me give you some reasons why right now I read it as he's describing his life as a Christian and the Christian struggle with sin. Uh, The first reason I read it that way is that Paul does speak of himself in the first person present tense. Uh, In verses 7 through 13, where Paul was looking back at those days when God was working in his life to bring him to Christ, he speaks in the past tense. He speaks of himself in a past manner. And it's been very clear in those verses that he's been looking back to years earlier about how God's law brought him to conviction. But now, in verse 14, Paul shifts from the past tense to the present tense. And he doesn't say that he once did what he did not want to and did not do what he wanted, but he speaks of this in the the present tense, of, of this struggle to obey God's law as if it's a struggle that he currently knows as if it's a a struggle he is currently experiencing. Matthew Henry, you guys know how much I love Matthew Henry's commentary. Matthew Henry does a great job of showing the merits of both views of this passage. 
But in the end, for Matthew Henry, this is the point that wins him over to this view. Uh, He says that this is the chief argument, the fact that Paul so clearly transitions in verse 14 from the past to the present tense. That's what makes him think Paul is describing his Christian life. Uh, Many of you know John Piper. John Piper says, It will take a very compelling argument to overthrow the simple, straightforward impression you get that Paul is talking about himself and a part of his present Christian experience. He says, I don't think there is such an argument to overthrow that one. At least I've never heard of it. So that's something to keep in mind, that he does speak in the present tense. Uh, The second reason that I read it that way is this. Uh, Paul talks about, there is the way, sorry, there is the way that Paul talks about himself and the law of God. The manner in which Paul talks about himself and the law of God. Remember, Paul's main point in all of this is to show that the law of God is good. We're to love the law. We're to cherish the law. But look at how he makes this argument, particularly in verse 16. Look at verse 16. It's an interesting verse. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So so Paul is saying that there is something internal in him that uh, shows that he knows that the law is good. That is like, it's like when we commit a sin and we suddenly feel guilt or feel shame for the sin that we've committed, we know we've done something that we shouldn't have done. We know we've done something we didn't want to do and that shows that deep down we know the law of God is good. So illustration, you tell a lie, okay? Um, you, you, you tell a lie and then you realize what you've just done and you begin to feel bad about it. You know you've done something wrong. And this isn't the kind of person you want to be. You've just done the very kind of thing you hate, being dishonest. Well, in that moment when you're having those feelings, You're showing that you agree that God's law, thou shalt not bear false witness, you agree that that is good. If you did not think that was good, would you be experiencing guilt? Would you be experiencing shame? So the fact that you're even having those feelings shows that you agree with God's law. You agree that the law is good. Now, that's how he makes his case in verse 16. Look at what he does in verse 17. Verse 17. So now... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul makes a distinction between himself, the I who loves God, the I who loves God's law, the I who cherishes honesty, and the sin within him that has just lied. He almost seems to be saying that it's not really him that is sinning, but this indwelling sin within him that is sinning. Paul speaks of sin almost as an alien part of him, almost as something that's not really him, but it's still attached to him, and it's leading him into sin, but it's not really him. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Notice those all-important words. No longer. No longer. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
In other words, Paul is saying it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always that I loved God and I wanted to do right and I cherished the law of God and this sin is leading me this way. He says it wasn't always like that. It used to be the I who loved sin. It used to be the I that hated God. I used to give myself wholeheartedly to sin. I didn't think twice about it, but now no longer. A line has been crossed. There's been a fundamental change at the core of who he is. At the very root of his soul, he now no longer desires sin and loves sin the way he used to. At the very core of who he is, he now wants to obey God. He now wants to do what is right. But it's this force within him. It's this indwelling sin that keeps leading him into sin. Now, I would argue that perhaps an unbeliever, even an unbeliever under the conviction of sin, cannot really talk that way. Yes, the unbeliever sees himself as a slave to sin. Yes, an unbeliever under conviction is coming to see his need for Christ. But can an unbeliever speak of himself as having experienced the change that verse 17 seems to reflect? Can an unbeliever speak of himself as now distinct from sin, wanting something different than indwelling sin wants? And then this is kind of confirmed for me by verse 22. Verse 22. Can an unbeliever, even an unbeliever, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is not loving the law of God the way Paul did as a Pharisee. This is not loving the law of God in a shallow, self-righteous way. This is loving the law of God at the very core of your soul, in my inner being, finding delight in the law of God. Is that not the same thing as having the law of God written on your heart? That suddenly you cherish God and His commands. I think that's what it is. It's having the law of God written on our hearts. And how does that happen? By the new birth, by regeneration, by the Holy Spirit causing that to take place. I also think that verse 18 Verse 18 gives us a hint that Paul is describing himself as a Christian. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. Why? Why add that in? Why why make that distinction? Why add that qualification? There's nothing good in me whatsoever. That is, in my flesh. If Paul is describing himself as an unbeliever, then his whole life is flesh. All he is living is fleshly life. There's no good in him, period. There are none who are good. No, not one. Romans 3, right? But when a person is born again by the Spirit of God, when a person comes to trust Christ, this changes. In our flesh, there remains nothing good. But we're not just flesh anymore. We've become renewed spirit. The spirit of God himself dwells in us and is changing our spirit so that there is now true and real good within us, but not in our flesh. So it seems that that Paul is adding this qualification in such a way that only a Christian would. Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
So those are some of the reasons uh, why my understanding right now is that this passage is referring to Paul's present Christian experience. And we have two more messages to go on these verses, and that's how we're going to interpret them together. Uh, But I do want you to know, I want to be very humble about this. I'm not sure, okay? And if I come to you 10 years from now and say, I changed my mind, I hope you'll understand. I warned you ahead of time. So that's how I take it now. Now, this does have some important implications for us. Um, We'll draw out many of those next week, but right now, go back to verse 14. Go back and look at verse 14. When Paul says that he is of the flesh and sold under sin, he is speaking of who he is by nature, right? By nature, we are sold under sin, right? By nature, we are of the flesh. But when we are converted, that natural man doesn't immediately go away. That natural man, is it, it, he's fatally wounded, And there will be a day when that natural man, that old man, will be completely gone. He will be utterly apart from us. We will be in heaven. We will be glorified. We won't have to worry about the old man anymore. But that day has not yet come. And so there is still a part of us, even in this life as Christians, that is the old man, that is of the flesh, that is sold under sin. And because that's true, the Christian life, this side of heaven, will always be a battle. Now, what does it mean to be of the flesh? Please understand, this does not mean mainly anything to do with your physical body. Okay? The flesh is that which is opposed to the Spirit. The flesh is that which is opposed to God. The flesh is that power within you, that force within you that wants you to do anything and everything to rebel against your Creator. Remember, you and I were born into a humanity that has declared outright rebellion against God. That's in you. That's in the fabric of your being now because of the curse, because of what happened in the garden. Enmity against God, resistance to God's will is bound up within us. And this means that as long as we are in this life, there will always be a part of us that is irked by God's commands. There will always be a part of us in this life that will be, when we hear the commands of God brought upon us. We have been made new. We have the Spirit. And deep down at the very core of who we are, that is no longer who we are. But there is still a part of us that doesn't want to be told what to do. There is still a part of us that wants to be God ourselves and God over ourselves. There is still a part of us that wants what we want when we want it. Is there not? Is this not true? Um, There is a part of us that still finds perverse enjoyment in sin. There is still a part of us that gets aggravated when we don't get our way. That's what it means to be of the flesh. Uh, What does it mean to be sold under sin? Well, to be sold under sin means to be delivered into slavery to sin. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and the whole human race in the garden. We were given into slavery to sin. Now, through Jesus Christ, that, that slavery that we were in has been broken and that we now have a new man, a new part of us that, that, is, that is no longer under the captivity of sin. 
But our flesh, by its very essence, is still a voluntary slave to sin. Our flesh, by its very essence, wants us to remain under sin's power. It wars against us. Go back and remember uh, Romans 6, 12 through 14, and the way that uh, sin uses your own body parts and the members of your body and your emotions and attitudes and tries to use those things to war against you, to bring you back under sin's rule. So there is still a part of us that happily bows to sin and serves its desires. So this is just the Christian life, today as it is. Now, three words of counsel. Three words of counsel based on what we've seen tonight. Number one, because what we've seen tonight is true, certainly the theology has been true, don't let your struggle with sin cause you to doubt your salvation. Don't let your struggle with sin cause you to doubt your salvation. If you are resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are seeking to follow Him, let Him be your assurance. Trust Him and His Word and you can be sure that you are saved because His Word will not fail you. Don't think that you are strange because you wear the name Christian and yet you find the Christian life to be so hard. Don't think that because the Christian life is so difficult for you, this must mean that you are not Christ at all. No, just the very opposite. The fact that you are struggling with sin, the fact that you feel the the pain of this battle reflects that the Spirit of God is at work within you. If God's Spirit was not at work within you, you would not hate sin. You would happily give yourself to it. There would be no battle. If you ever find there's a day when you are willingly giving yourself to some known sin, you're not fighting it, you're not hating it, you're not repenting of it, you're not even really worried about it, you're taking no steps to defeat it, if you're there, you have reason to doubt your salvation. But if you are fighting sin and longing to be holy, though you fall again and again, take comfort. You're just like the rest of us. You're just like the Apostle Paul. That's encouraging, isn't it? Even Paul experienced this. This life is not heaven. True Christians here today will be marked both by inner peace, but also by inner warfare. Counsel number two. Hear this as a call to fight. Hear this as a call to fight. Don't let these words lead you to make peace with sin in your life. Don't hear me saying all Christians struggle with sin and assume that you can then say, oh, oh, this isn't a big deal then. I won't struggle anymore. No. Sin is the very opposite of God. Sin is vile through and through. Sin works to destroy you, and if you make peace with sin, it will destroy you, and you will prove that you were never God's to begin with. Remember, saving faith is enduring, persevering faith. So hate sin. Hate it to your core. Love Christ with all your heart. Love everything that characterizes Him. Love every virtue, every fruit of the Spirit, which is the opposite of sin. Pursue virtue with all your might. 
fight against sin and fight not to earn your salvation. Fight because salvation already has been freely given you and you worship your Savior through this battle. You become a greater instrument in His hands to bless your family and your co-workers in this world by growing in holiness. And then third piece of counsel, third and finally, look forward to the day when the fight will be over. Unless Jesus comes back first, it will be the day of your death. The day of your death will be the day when this battle is over. Remember Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The day of our death as a Christian is the most glorious day of our lives. It's the day we enter into the very presence of God. It's the day when we get to rest from the fight, eternal rest. We will never have to fight this fight again. In this life, we Christians are still wretched men. In this life, we Christians are still wretched women. We, we have to fight against our own selves. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, we are going to be delivered into a new day, a different kind of day. We who are very low in this life will be brought very high. Throughout history, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been separated into two camps, the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant are those Christians following Jesus in this life. And they're called the church militant not because they are attacking other people or engaging in battles with guns and bullets. No, we who are following Jesus in this life are called the church militant because we're still in the fight against spiritual enemies. We're still in the battle against Satan and his minions. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are fighting against this world. 1 John 1, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then as we've seen tonight, we also fight against our own flesh. And Romans eight thirteen says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's not talking about physical death. So this is a real battle, and the church militant, the church in this life, is experiencing a real war against real spiritual enemies. And this battle, if you're a Christian, will bring real pain in your life, real heartache into your life, real struggle into your life. But dear friends, before too long, probably quicker than you anticipate, this life will be over. And we will join the church triumphant. We will enter eternal rest into the very presence of God, into the company of those brothers and sisters who have gone before us. 
They've run the race. They've fought the fight. And they've obtained the prize. Long for that day. There will be a day in which all of our enemies will lay dead at our feet. Our flesh, Satan, the world. And we will have eternal joy forever and ever. So take comfort in knowing that this struggle with sin is normal. Resolve by grace to fight and fight hard and look to the day when you will enter eternal rest from your labors and be with God forever. Let's pray.